And take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. So it's all in the, the T's there in the New Testament. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Um, the book of Titus. You'll forgive me if I'm either a little bit scattered uh, this morning or short uh, in what I have to say, uh, given uh, the, the the unique week. I think also I was catching up from the jet lag finally. It hit me uh, this week, so uh, you'll forgive me for that. But uh, we'll be in the book of Titus this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Uh, we introduced the book of Titus last week, so let me just catch everyone up if you weren't here. Uh, we said this is a letter written by Paul. Uh, Paul describes himself as an apostle and a servant of Christ. He was specifically called as the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning that he had this unique ministry to those who were not of Jewish heritage, calling them to faith in Jesus. Um, he, if you look at his life, spent a lot of his time traveling to various areas, telling people the good news about salvation through Christ, through repentance and faith. And as people believed, he would help to establish churches in those areas. You might say he was one of the first church planters. Uh, he would stay with those churches for varying periods of time, sometimes weeks, sometimes years. Um, and he would then often leave his partners in ministry there to help keep the church established and to be the, the pastors or elders or overseers, whatever term you prefer, in those churches. And it would seem that Titus is one of these partners in ministry. He's called a true child of Paul, which we said could mean that he came to faith through Paul's ministry, but it certainly means that he was taught by Paul. And we find here that Titus is left uh, to be the head of the church, or even we could say the churches on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. We're not sure how long he's, he's been there, but we're sure that he's facing some difficulties uh, from false teachers known as the Judaizers or the circumcision party. Um, who are teaching that people need to follow the law of Moses to become children of God. Um, and combined with those false teachers, he's also dealing with Cretan culture. Uh, the Cretans who are marked as being people who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so in the midst of this culture and in the midst of false teachers, Paul wants Titus uh, to trust the gospel, is what we said last time. He wants him to trust the gospel and, and he assures Titus that the gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. That's what we said is kind of the big theme for the book of Titus. The gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. Therefore, Titus, therefore us as God's church, we need to trust the gospel and the power of the gospel. So the power for change comes from the gospel, and the goal is godly members of Christ's church, marked by good works. Good works is a huge theme through the book of Titus. Uh, and the, the plan that Paul lays out begins with godly leaders, it leads to godly church members, and then it flows into this engagement with the world. And he tells us in Titus 1.5, he says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And so it seems that that's sort of the, the overarching uh, call that Paul has is to put things in order. And the first step of putting things into order is to put godly leaders into place. And so as we come to this passage, this is, that's what we're going to talk about, about these elders that Titus is supposed to put in charge of the church. And we have to ask, what kind of leaders um, do we want in the church? What kind of leaders 
does Paul think should be in the church? Are, are there things that make someone a strong leader, maybe in other realms of life, in business, um, in, in a home even, that, that might not make them strong leaders within the church? Um, that's certainly possible. Um, to say that something that makes someone a strong leader in society or in business will also make them a strong leader in the church, it doesn't really flow. That's like saying that someone who um, will be a great gymnast will also be a great basketball player. Not necessarily, because usually gymnasts are obviously a lot shorter, and basketball players are a lot taller. And what a basketball player can do, a gymnast cannot, and, and vice versa. And so as we think about leadership, there's some specific leadership qualities that, that should be a part of a person who is going to be a leader in the church that may not be the same as other realms within society. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Paul instructs Titus not only to appoint elders, but also what kind of elders to appoint. And I think as we look at these verses, verses 5 through 16, this is sort of the, the big theme that I want us to think about. It's that God graciously gives the church leaders transformed by the gospel who boldly proclaim the gospel. God graciously gives the church leaders. So leaders, elders, pastors are a gift from God to the church. We see that in Ephesians 4. If you were in Sunday school, Jordan talked about that last week. God graciously gives the church leaders. But what are they? They're leaders that have been transformed by the gospel who boldly proclaim the gospel. I think we'll see those two things. They're transformed by the gospel and they boldly proclaim the gospel. As we think about how the church can be transformed by the gospel, and that's a big theme of Titus, we see that this step of appointing leaders is vital. It's sort of the, the core, and from that core, it flows out into all the other areas. And whether we're leaders or not, we need to understand uh, who is called to be appointed as a leader in the church, uh, what the church should expect of its leaders, or what should you expect of, of myself as a pastor, or as an elder, or Joel, as an elder, or even as we think about voting on elders tonight, as we put forth two brothers as elders, are they marked by these characteristics? That's what we want to think about. Um, what should we expect of our leaders? And so look with me at, at Titus, and I want to read from chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 16. Titus 1, 5 to 16. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, 
not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, for both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. We said the big idea of this is that God uh, graciously gives the church leaders transformed by the gospel who boldly proclaim the gospel. Now, last week, as we were looking at the book of Titus as a whole, we zeroed in a lot on verses 10 through 16. So we're going to focus a lot on verses 5 through 9 and see what Paul says in 5 through 9 about the character of elders and how that relates then to verses 10 through uh, 16. So in 5 through 9, we find that the kind of men that should be appointed as elders within the church. And, and in that, these, these verses, I think there's three broad categories that we can think about. That those that are called to the office of elder are called to be marked by three different things. Um, and so we'll talk about these three different things. The first one more than the, the last two, but we'll talk about all three of them. So these are the three things. Character that cannot be questioned. Uh, instruction that values sound doctrine. And confrontation that exposes lies. So it's, it's character, instruction, and confrontation. But it's character that cannot be questioned, instruction that values sound doctrine, and confrontation that exposes lies. If you didn't get all three of those, I will repeat them. But we're going to talk about the first one, which is character that cannot be questioned. That's the first thing that Paul emphasizes. And it's actually, it seems to be the main thing that Paul emphasizes is character. As you look at these characteristics in verses 6 through 9, uh, we see that, that Paul says that there are things that elders should be and things that they should not be. That's kind of how he, he breaks it down. So he states things positively and negatively. He says to Titus and to us, if you see these characteristics in a man, then he can be appointed as an elder. And if you see these characteristics in a man, then he should not be appointed as an elder. There's sort of a positive and a negative thing. And you can see that there um, in uh in verse 7, not be arrogant, not be quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. But instead, he should be hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. So as you look at those characteristics, though, there's a sense in which you would say, wouldn't we expect all of the members of Christ church in general to be marked by these things? Shouldn't we all strive to not be arrogant drunks? Uh, or greedy people. I mean, I, I would hate to say that the, the church is filled with people that are those things. Uh, shouldn't we all be hospitable? Shouldn't we all be self-controlled and, and holy? So why, why does Paul pick out these characteristics? I think in one sense we could say that the standard for all Christians is the same, whether they're leaders or not, but that the calling for elders is, is unique. And it seems to come back to this overarching command that's said twice. You see it at the beginning of verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, your, your translation may say blameless. Uh, and then you see it again um, at, at the end. Where is it at again? <laughs> uh, for an overseer as God's steward in verse 7 must be above reproach, blameless. That's sort of the overarching command here. It's in, it's in Timothy as well. Um, and it's this idea of, of being above reproach, of being blameless, as, as this individual relates to the world. As the world looks at elders, they are, there should be no charge that can be brought against 
their character. This is what Calvin says about it in his commentary. He says, when he says that a bishop must be blameless, bishop is just another way of translating elder, uh, must be blameless, he does not mean one who is exempt from every vice, for no such person could at any time be found, but one who is marked by no disgrace that would lessen his authority. I like that. No disgrace that would lessen his authority. He means, therefore, that he shall be a man of unblemished reputation. I think that's good. We do want all Christians to, to espouse these things, uh, the character traits that are here. But there's a uniqueness that, in that the elder should be blameless in these things so that he can lead the church well and represent God's people in the world in a unique way. This is why it's so tragic when leaders in the church fail morally or fail in, in something like greed with money. And they do it so openly because they are to represent the church. They are to be the, the, the one who stands forth as blameless so that no one can bring a charge against them and therefore no one can bring a charge against the church and therefore no one can bring a charge against God himself and the faith that we proclaim. Elders represent the church and therefore to fail in these character traits and to have character that is questioned is to bring shame not just on them but shame on the whole church. There's a sense in which you would say that if, if, if you as a member of the church were to fail in one of these characteristics, would you bring shame on the name of Christ and on the church? Yes. But is there not a sense in which uh, if Joel or I fail in one of these character traits and we bring shame, there's a larger sense, a larger responsibility in which shame comes upon the whole church. And so I think that's why Paul really focuses on these. Elders are to have character that cannot be questioned, character that re represents who the church is to be, character that represents who Christ is, but also it's character that opposes the, the culture at large. I think that Paul chooses some of these characteristics because they actually stand firmly against the culture that Titus is in. It'd be an interesting study, if you're interested in thinking about this further, to take all these characteristics and to make a list of them, and to go then down through verses 10 through 16 and see the characteristics of the false teachers and the Cretans. Let me give you what, the, what it says there. The false teachers and the Cretans, this is how they're described. Insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They are greedy in that they are teaching for gain. Probably they're teaching for financial gain. Um, they are liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. They are detestable. They are disobedient. And they are unfit for any good work. That's what the false teachers and the Cretans look like. And I think that Paul picks some of these terms to say, in a sense... You're supposed to be the exact opposite of the culture that surrounds you. The elders are to represent in a unique way who the church is supposed to be in a unique way so that we represent who God is in the world. And they are opposed to everything that the culture looks like. So when you consider the list, Paul is then telling Titus to find leaders and pastors who are the opposite of the culture that he lives in. Their family life, their marriage, their parenting should be different from everyone else. Are they supposed to be perfect? No. They're supposed to be different. And they're supposed to be above reproach. I think that helps in thinking about some of these, these characteristics. I think it helps with something like children who are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Are all of my children believers? No, because they're too young to be believers. But also, even if they were old enough, is there not a sense in which 
that this is not necessarily that, that who is it that chooses when someone becomes a Christian and how they become a Christian. I could be a perfect parent and still have children who are not believers. But the focus here is that they are not open to a charge. And I think, again, coming back to that wonderful phrase that, that Calvin used, that they are not marked by disgrace that would lessen authority or that they would, they would have an unblemished reputation. And thinking about that above reproach, that blameless characteristic, helps us to understand, is the elder supposed to be perfect? No. But the elder is, is to model these things well so that no charge can be brought against the church. Um, the way that, that the elders interact with others, with money, with the world at large, shows the gospel and how it changes people and makes them more like the Father. But that character not only represents who the church is to be, and it not only represents the opposite of the culture at large, but it represents Christ. I, I find it interesting that as Paul begins the letter, he sticks this one phrase in there. He says, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Isn't that interesting that what does he pull out about God? God never lies. Isn't that a huge issue within the church that Titus is pastoring? He says God never lies. God never is greedy for gain. He doesn't tell you what's wrong. He doesn't, he's not a false teacher. Uh, he's not like the Cretans who are always liars. And there's a sense in which all these characteristics not only show uh, the, the, the opposite of the culture at large, but they reflect the character of God. And is that not what the church is supposed to be? Is a visible expression of the glory of God and the character of God in this world. Now, before we move on to think about the instruction that elders are to, to give um, instruction, that, that this, this idea that elders are to give instruction and that they are also to bring confrontation to false teaching, I think it's good to pause and see that, that character comes first and that character is really what is emphasized. You see in verse, um, verse 9 is, is sort of the, the whole teaching about he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So there is this aspect of instruction, of teaching, of rebuking that must be a part of an elder. And we see that in, in, in the letter that Paul writes to Timothy as well, that an elder... Is, is set apart in some ways from the deacon in that he is to be able to teach. There's something unique about that teaching office. But the character is what is first. I think the church can get into trouble. We can get distracted by a dynamic leader or a dynamic teacher and think that they should be an elder even if their character is weak, even if their character might be somewhat questionable. We can begin to think that our, our leaders are simply the people who teach really well. But should elders be able to teach? Yes, I think that's clear. But equally, and I would say probably more importantly, they are to be men whose character cannot be questioned. Men who are blameless, who instruct the world and confront the world first by the way that they live, and then by the way that they speak. I hope that's always the emphasis that we have. I hope that's the emphasis even in my own heart as I think about being a pastor. Am I as focused on my character as I am on my preaching? Am I as focused on making sure that my life is one that's lived in holiness before the church and before the world? Am I as focused on that as I am on the fact that I want to proclaim God's word well? I hope so. 
and I hope that's true for all of our elders. But there is a gifting in, in teaching and instructions that elders are supposed to have. Um, the reason strong teaching is so important is because the truth of the gospel purely taught is the source of all the power that we have as followers of Christ. So the, the pastor is to teach the word clearly because, as we said last week, that's the source of the power for godly living. Notice the instruction there in verse 9, to the, 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 the command to, that, they, that the elder needs to be able to instruct and rebuke. It flows from something. Look at verse 9. He, speaking about the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. So the word here where it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, this is probably specifically speaking about the, the core gospel message. Um, but it, it certainly holds true to, the, to all of Scripture as well. So this person is to hold to the truth firmly so that they are able to instruct and rebuke. It starts in the individual first. It, it's not the person needs to be able to teach and rebuke. It begins with this person needs to love the Word and hold firmly to the Word, and have a grasp on Scripture in a deep way, and on the truth of the Gospel in a deep way, so that he will be able to instruct and rebuke. So we said that as we think about the characteristics of an elder, it needs to have character. Um, I think we said something about his character, right? Character that cannot be questioned. That's what we said. Character that cannot be questioned. The second thing, instruction that values sound doctrine. Instruction that values sound doctrine. And that's verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. An elder needs to have a, a grip on the word. Um, whenever I use that phrase, I'm always reminded of the illustration that Joel often brings about how to have a grip on the Word, uh, through meditation, uh, through hearing God's Word, um, through reading and studying God's Word, uh, and through praying uh, through God's Word. That the elder needs to have that so that he can instruct uh, others in sound doctrine. Instruction always flows from, from an, an inner understanding, an inner love for the truth, inner grasp of sound doctrine, and then would flow out into instruction and teaching that values those things. And then the, the third thing there is the confrontation that exposes lies. A character that cannot be questioned. Instruction that values sound doctrine. Confrontation that exposes lies. You see that there at the end. He's to give instruction in sound doctrine. This is verse 9. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. It shows up again um, in verse 13. Speaking about the Cretans and all the, who they are, he says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. It sounds similar to the character, doesn't it? The character is to represent well the, the character of God, but it also, the character confronts the culture. The teaching does the same thing. The teaching represents the core of who God is, the core of what the gospel is, but that teaching also should confront false teaching. It should confront the false doctrine. It should co confront the circumcision party and the Cretans and help them to see what is true. I think that's uh, it's a good balance to have. 
Um, it's the right balance to have. And I think that leaders in a unique way should be the ones that are confronting and exposing uh, the lies that are in this world. Um, one role that an elder should have is that, is that people in the church, in the congregation, in the world should be able to come to an elder and say, here's what I'm being taught. Is this true? Is this right? Is this not? And to help those that are members of the church to know how to confront false teaching in the world. And there's a unique calling within that to understand the world at large, to understand what false teaching is and to be able to confront it. That is unique to what an elder is called to do. So these are the kind of men that, that Paul says need to be in leadership. In their character, in their instruction, in their confrontation, they stand against culture. And they also stand forth as those who bear the name of Christ and his character. As we look at this, we see that God graciously gives the church leaders transformed by the gospel who boldly proclaim the gospel. I'm thankful that God has done this at Grace Fellowship Church through the years. For those of you that have been a part of, of Grace for a number of years, we can look back at the the you know uh, decade plus years of ministry in this church and be extremely thankful that we have been blessed with men with leaders of character and people who love the truth and proclaimed it well. I can't think of, of many, of any, off the top of my head. And maybe if I dug real deep, I could come up with something. But if I think about the history of our church, I don't think of any that were not marked by character and were not marked by a clear hold of the truth that loved God's word and proclaimed it well. And I think that that legacy uh, hopefully continues. I don't want to speak for myself, but as I think about Joel, and as I think about Trevor and Joshua, and as we place them forward in front of our church, uh, we would not say these men should be elders if we didn't think that they had character that could not be questioned, if they held firmly to the truth such that they could instruct us in sound doctrine and confront the, the lies that are in this world. I believe that God has gifted them to this church in a unique way, and I'm so thankful for that. But it's, it's not just them. Elders are to lead and to train the church. And leadership assumes followership, if that's a word. I don't know. Uh, it's not something that the elders are to do that the members don't have to do. Uh, as we'll see next Sunday, that the church members are to be transformed by the Gospels, and the elders simply lead in that. They are to be the leaders of it so that others would be able to walk in that truth. And that doesn't mean that the elder is the most holy person in the church. Sometimes they're not. Very often they are not. And yet they are to stand forth and to lead and to teach well in those things. So don't read this passage and say, well, I'm not an elder, so I don't have to worry about it. But rather to say, if my elders are this way, I hope that I am following them, that I am listening to the instruction, that I am taking, uh, taking full advantage of, of who they are and who they are to be in this church. But we'll see more of that next Sunday, how the, the teaching and sound doctrine if, if our elders are teaching right, sound doctrine, it will overflow in seeing those good works worked out within the church at large. I, I was thinking about how to transition into the Lord's Supper this morning. And I was thinking about how um, the Lord's Supper in many ways summarizes these things well. Uh, for elders, but also for us all. As we think about the character that we are to have as God's people, uh, we could simply say that the character is to model the cross, is to model what Jesus has done for us. We could look at all of these characteristics and say, well, Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of these things perfectly. 
Jesus is the one who reminds us what, what it looks like to be a humble servant. Jesus reminds us of what it looks like to love and to lay down your life for the sake of your brothers. It speaks to the perfection of Jesus, that he was filled with good works, that he was devoid of any evil, that he never lied, that he was never any of the things that we are, and that because of his perfect righteousness, he is able to pay the penalty for our sin and to die in our place. So he is the model for us. And so as we think about character, what are we to do? We are to model the cross. We are to show the cross as elders and as Christians. And as we think also about this sound doctrine, we proclaim the cross. We proclaim that this is the core of what we believe. This is who we are. We are people who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. There's a sense in which I think about the fact that the elders and, and the leaders, and we can stand behind the pulpit and proclaim the truth of God week after week after week, and we can do it in an amazing way. But there's nothing so clear about the core thing that we believe as taking the bread and taking the cup. Jesus has given us a sermon in, in, that we can hold on to, and a sermon that proclaims him. I, I love that, that, that phrase, that, that we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. And so as we, as we take the bread and the cup, I want us to remember that, that it's who Jesus was in his character that we are to model, but it's, it's who he was in his perfection that allows him to purchase salvation for us. And that this is what we proclaim. We even in this, don't we confront false doctrine? We confront false doctrine and we say, this is not what saves us. The eating of this is not what saves us. And the bread is a symbol and the cup is a symbol, but it's rather faith alone in Christ that saves us.